Good morning to you all. My name is Jerry. It's my honor to be uh, one of the teaching pastors here at Northwest Community Church. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I need to tell you, it has been uh, several weeks, probably four or five, since I have been able to be up here for a full-on 35-minute message with you. Uh, summertime at Northwest is unique. We've got several guest speakers that come in, some missionaries that have been fantastic, and uh, student-led Sunday, which was fantastic, and uh, family chat stuff. So a lot of very unique elements. Um, but I was looking at the calendar, and I'm like, man, it's been a little while since I've been able to get up and really share my heart with you. So I am so excited about this morning and uh, so glad that you guys chose to join us here this morning. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 2. The book of Mark chapter 2. That's where we're going to be spending um, all of our time. I'll reference Mark 1 a little bit, and then we'll have some other passages of Scripture up on the screen. But if you want to go there, that would be, that would be great. But man, what a summer it's been, huh? Have you guys been around for a lot of these Sundays this summer? I don't know how you, I don't know how you felt, but it's just like incredible Sunday that was so great. And then the next week, incredible Sunday that was so great. And then the next week, you know, I mean, when Ken Rudolph came and spoke... That was absolutely fantastic. Uh, when Matt Hahn spoke and then the students got up and did their thing, which was incredible. And it just got better and better and better and better. And um, we're about ready to take a dive here this morning because we're, we're back to the normal. I was hoping somebody would stand up and be like, what are you talking about, man? Go on. Preach, brother. And such luck. Anyway, it's been an awesome, awesome summer. And uh, last Sunday was just a highlight of my life. I can honestly say that between uh, the morning, getting a chance to baptize my three kids, and Sunday night, the feel, the energy that was in here, the worship that was in here, uh, the fun that we had with, uh, with the shenanigans, and the vision that was, that was cast, and where we're headed as a church is really exciting. And I know I've met a couple people that just rolled in for the very first time this morning. Uh, you're just visiting, just moved here, just checking things out. Um, man, God is doing some amazing things here, and it's really cool just to, to be able to be a part of it and to be able to see it happen. So this morning here in Mark chapter 2, I want to center around a standalone message. You know, we start our series next week, like Matt said. Um, so it was just an opportunity to, to create and really to hear from God about, all right, well, we got one, one Sunday. Lots of our beloved people are gone, but lots of our people are still here. What do you want me to say that will impact hearts and minds? Um, spirit lead me and uh, I really feel like he led me to this particular passage um, and the title of the message if you're taking notes is desperate for deep friendships desperate for deep friendships all right so I want to talk about the word uh, desperate for a second and then I want to talk about the word friendship when you think about the idea of desperation that kind of conjures up in your mind you know like an urgency and like a last-ditch effort, uh, you know, in the sports world, it's, you know, a Hail Mary pass as the time's running out or something like that. You feel about desperation, right? Somebody who's desperate. Um, you think about maybe the relational side of, of, uh, of things, right? In the dating world, you ever meet somebody or maybe you've ever been accused of or uh, convinced that maybe you were desperate to get a date with somebody or to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever, right? That's a term that we throw around. Well, I experienced that, uh, that sensation um, one time or another in, in my days. Uh, I was probably 18 or 19 years old. I was in college, and, um, you know, I was a fairly friendly person and had lots of friends, and 
interactions. Um, but a problem that I used to have, I mean, it never happens anymore, um, is the idea of like procrastination. You know, so at our school, at our little Christian school, we had two big uh, date kind of events a year, a Christmas banquet and a spring banquet. And so that calendar has been out for months and I knew that thing was coming, and I bought tickets for it, and I had all my boys in my dorm, we were all planning on going together with all of our dates, but I didn't quite have, how do you say, a date just yet. And so this is like five days before the event, and I'm like, all right, you know what, I probably need to ask somebody. So sure enough, I pick up a phone, and I call somebody, hey, uh, yeah, about Friday night, you got anything going on? Uh, you know, we got this little banquet. Oh, you already have a date. Oh, cool. Well, I'll see you there and say hi from across the room. Okay, bye. Shoot, you know, first one's crossed off. Got my little mental list here. I'm like, all right, let me try the next one. So I call her. Oh, no, she's already got a date too. So then I call the next one. Oh, no, you have to work. Oh, okay. And with each one, like the urgency is getting more and more and more. You know what I mean? So now it's the next day and then it's the next day. And so here we are like two days before. This is Wednesday in the deal is Friday night and I still don't have a date so finally I call this girl and I said hey Courtney this is Jerry yeah you remember me from class well I was just wondering I've got an extra ticket for Friday night to the Christmas banquet and wanted to know if you would want to go with me uh you know and, and it'll be great oh yeah that sounds great I'd, I'd love to go with you that would be awesome yes Okay, sweet, that sounds awesome. Oh, Courtney, crazy thing. Um, you're actually the seventh person that I've asked. <laughs> Silence on the other end of the line. So somewhere, you know, that, that goes through your mind, but somehow that idea of like, she's number seven, went from a thought, trickled its way down through any filter, and somehow went right out of my mouth over the phone line, so now she recognizes that she's number seven choice for this date, uh, for this banquet that's two days away. Just a word of caution to any of you guys. If that were to happen to you, a good rule of thumb, like, just don't ever say that to anyone ever, ever, right? So we got through it, and we laugh about it now, but I mean, number seven, um, you know, in the Olympics, that wouldn't have even been on the medal stand, you know? That's like way down here, like, also ran Courtney, you know? But anyway, we can look at that, and on a shallow level, we understand maybe what desperation means in that realm. But what we want to talk about is something way deeper than that. We want to talk about the urgency, the emergency, maybe the, the relational desperation. Maybe it's the physical, the spiritual, the emotional desperation that maybe at one point or another you've been in in your life where you're saying, man, I need somebody to rescue. I'm at my wit's end. I don't even know what I'm going to do. And early in the life of Christ, we get this incredible account way in the beginning of his ministry that we just want to dive into and take a couple minutes this morning to understand um, the idea of being desperate for deep friendships. So this is September, right? This is the beginning of a new year. School started for a lot of people. Kind of the workflows, maybe back into a little bit more of the routine. Most people are back from vacation and summer stuff, right? So we thought it would be appropriate to talk about uh, another beginning. And that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
It's the beginning of our school year and it's the beginning of Christ's ministry and he felt it so important to illustrate something to us. And here in Mark chapter 1, as Jesus was beginning, um, you know, we see his attitude towards deep relationships and deep friendships. Because in Mark chapter 1, he was baptized, you know, by John the Baptist. And then the book of Mark, by the way, loves the word immediately. Anybody here kind of um, ADD or ADHD or something like that? Like, you, you know, you find your attention just going everywhere. You need something quick paced. This is the one for you, right? The book of Mark's like, immediately Jesus did this. And then immediately the disciples did that. And they're always moving all over. And it's really exciting and action-packed. Well, immediately after Jesus was baptized, it says, he went out to the wilderness for 40 days. And he was out in the wilderness and he was being tempted by the enemy, by Satan. And he was communing with his father and he was fasting and he was uh, being ministered to by his father. And he was overcoming the temptations and the testings for 40 days to prove that this was the time. Now I'm ready. I've communed with my father. I'm ready to present my message of redemption to the world. And so immediately he came back from that. And what is the very first thing that Jesus did. It says he went out and got some friends. Some friends. Right here in Mark chapter 1, um, verse uh, 15, it, it talks about what that looked like. I was all by myself, spending time with God. I'm ready, but I'm not going at this alone. I need some other people in my life. So he's walking there along the Sea of Galilee, and uh, there's um, Peter and Andrew. He calls them, and immediately le they left their nets, and they followed him. Oh, there's James and John, two other brothers. Immediately, they began to follow him. So now, all of a sudden, he's got four people around him who he said, I want you to enter into my world. I want you to enter into my story, and I'm going to enter into your story, and this is how the mission is going to be accomplished. It's pretty amazing when you think about the idea of relationship and the fact that we were created out of relationship, right? God existed as Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, so there was a relationship there, and we were made in His image. And in Genesis chapter 2, God says, It is not good for man or woman to be alone, they need each other. There's a reliance. There's a symmetry and there's a connectivity that as human beings we need. And Jesus here early on in his ministry exemplified it and illustrated for us what we need to do. So against that backdrop here, let's go ahead with uh, Mark chapter 2, um, uh, verse 1. And, uh, and by the way, again, if you're taking notes, super simple here. What do we need to accomplish these deep friendships? We need two things. Uh, we need to understand two things. These deep friendships, number one, they involve vulnerability. Vulnerability. That's the key word. Let's go ahead and start reading. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And let's just stop right there. The idea of being vulnerable is the idea of sharing rather than hoarding everything in your life. Strengths, joys, uh, triumphs, weaknesses, anxieties, fears. 
the person who's closed, the person who has a wall in front of them, they're not vulnerable. The one who does not have a wall and freely shares every part of his life is the one who's vulnerable. And this sharing really takes on a unique perspective here in Mark chapter 2. Because you'll notice in that very first verse it says, it was heard that Jesus was at home. That's a key word. Circle that, underline that. Um, where was Jesus from? Nazareth, right? He was born in Bethlehem, but it was Jesus of Nazareth. Later on in the gospel accounts, we see that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It was never said that he's got a, his own house or anything like that. But yet, it says that Jesus was at home in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. Well, in chapter 1, we get a little bit more of a clue um, here in verse 29 of chapter 1. It says, immediately, told you, that's his favorite word, Jesus left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So it's that passage and several other passages in the Gospels give you the idea that Simon and Andrew's home with their, with their mother-in-law, Jesus entered into and it then became his home. There was that level of sharing. This was our house, Jesus, now this is your house. And it's interesting, in chapter 3, um, there's a very similar scene. They're there in the house again, and a great crowd is there. And actually, Jesus' physical mother and brothers come to the door, and they're knocking, and they can't get in. Again, if you've been around church for a while, you remember this scene. And somebody goes and tells Jesus, who's there teaching, and they say, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to speak with you. And what does Jesus say? Who are my mother and my brothers? Is it not these people sitting around me? These are my mother and brothers. And that wasn't an offense to his real mother. We know that he loved his real mother and brothers. But he's saying, no, my spiritual family, I am now elevating way up here to the same exact level, if not even a little bit more than my physical family. That's the attitude that Jesus exemplified. That's what it means to share and have deep relationships. We're family. So vulnerability involves sharing everything. The good and the bad. And the problem when we refuse to be vulnerable is that we only share with people what they want, um, what we believe um, we want them to see. Right? And that's the curse of Facebook and Instagram and everything else. Here's the life that I want to portray to the world. Here's, yep, I'm going to be sharing the great things. But all the difficult things and the tragic things uh, and the mundane things, I don't want to share. Well, Jesus exemplified the life that was very highly invitational. He wanted his disciples to share in everything. He wanted them to share in the joyful moments the triumphant moments, the miracle moments, the high moments, the victorious moments, but he also wanted them to share in the difficult moments. The moments where he was tired, or he got angry, or he was persecuted, or he was cursed at, or he was driven out of town, or he was sorrowful, 
or he was anxious and doubting even and unsure in the garden. Father, is this really your will? Please, disciples, come in. Stay with me. Pray with me. Don't leave me. I'm inviting you in because I need you at this moment. Vulnerability involves sharing it all. And here we come across the account of a man who was incredibly vulnerable. He was a man who was paralyzed. And um, as we continue on in verse 2, we get the full account. It says, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room in Peter's house, not even at the door. And he, that is Jesus, was preaching the word to them. Church is happening. Instructions happening. Verse 3, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now when you talk about the idea of being vulnerable, of sharing weakness, this is a beautiful illustration of it. And when you talk about the idea of true friendship and deep friendship, it carries along the idea of coming down to their level and feeling what somebody else is feeling. We got a beautiful illustration of this from a commercial that I saw probably about 20 years ago and I still remember it it made that kind of impression because it's about friendship and dedication and I found it and I want to share it with you so check this out Yes, I did. Because I don't know why, but for some reason, it often seems like the ad executives that are hired by beer companies do a great job at drawing you in and trying to sell you a product that's going to create for you friendship and joy and honor and character and sacrifice. For anybody who's listening online, this was a commercial that was eight or ten guys having a game of wheelchair basketball. And when I first saw it, I'm like, oh yeah, well that's interesting. You know, Special Olympics or whatever it is, like yeah, that's great that they get a chance to do that. But then the hook in the commercial and what draws you in and just punches you right in the gut is that when the game's over, nine of the ten guys get up and start walking and there's only one guy that doesn't have legs that actually needs the wheelchair. And then they sit around sipping beer together. 
But the idea is, man, we love you so much that we're going to come down to your level. We're going to experience what you experience on a day-by-day basis because I love you and I'm connected to you and I want to feel what you feel. And there's that vulnerability and that aspect of friendship that is so often missed and they absolutely nailed it. Because when you're watching that commercial, like, man, I, I want friends like that. I want people around me that are willing to sacrifice and come down to my level at times. Well, I tell you what, you take that whole idea right there, multiply it by about a million, and you see what Jesus did for us. In John chapter 1, right, it says the word was with God, but then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The book of Hebrews talks about he experienced temptation, all the same temptations that we did, yet without sin. The book of Philippians chapter 2 talks about even though he was equal with God, he didn't view that position as something to be held on to, but instead he humbled himself, came down to the earth and made himself a servant. That's what vulnerability is. So here in this account, we've got a man who's paralyzed. And it's funny because being vulnerable and being paralyzed, it's already a given, right? He's not sitting there being like, hey, I can't walk. Um, Can you help me day after day? Oh, reminder, I can't walk. I need help. Can you do something for me? Reminder, these legs of mine don't work. Can you help me? He didn't have to do that, did he? Because physically, it was obvious. And guess what? For us, with the areas that were paralyzed, it's a whole lot more different difficult because for many of us we don't realize how deeply we're paralyzed internally and it's certainly not as obvious as that how do we get to that point where we have those kinds of friendships where we are able to share deeply beck and i were talking about this a couple of years ago and we were talking about this idea of friendship and sharing who are the people that that have that have stood by us and have gone deep with us and and um she said well you know it's it's really like it says in the bible he who has friends must first show himself friendly so you have to be the one that like gives the permission and like has to step out and i'm like honey it doesn't say that in the bible that's not a verse in the bible uh jerry yes it is no uh no it's not i've been to seminary hello Maybe Ben Franklin said it. It's some cute little quip, but that is not in the Bible. And sure enough, Proverbs 18, 24. If you want to have those kinds of friendships, somebody's got to start it out. Somebody's got to start by being vulnerable in allowing people to see their weakness. The person who was paralyzed knew what he wanted. He knew what was wrong. He didn't have to hide it. Unfortunately, we have the luxury or the curse of being able to hide it. I've got a couple questions here that I want to throw out to you as we talk about vulnerability because, see, for the most part, there's a huge vacuum of these types of relationships, especially among men. There is an article called The Great American Friendless Male that I found. 
And it talked about the John Wayne mentality that's, you know, I work alone. You know, like, I don't need anybody else. I'll be all right by myself. And a book called The Friendship Factor mentioned this. It reported in a huge survey that only 10% of men would say that they had any true friends. I'm not talking about guys that you enjoy a game with or another dad, you know, on the soccer team or a neighbor that you say hi to and have surface conversation. I'm talking about true friendship as defined by somebody that they would regularly share with about life, their deepest joys and their stresses, communicating their fears and their anxieties, asking them difficult questions. That means if we had 200 guys in this room right now standing up, if this survey is true, we would say, okay, if you, if you don't have any true friends as defined by that, I want you to sit down and there'd be only 20 guys standing and 180 guys would sit down. It's pretty shocking and pretty sobering when you think about it. Well, I've got a couple questions to help us ascertain and to get to that level of depth and friendship and vulnerability that I threw up here that maybe would be good for, God, for men and women, even teenagers, to be asking each other to help get you in that mode of understanding where you're paralyzed. How about some of these? Number one, where's the enemy having victory in your life this week? Oh Man, I've just been so angry and I keep on yelling at my kids and my wife and at work and pressure's coming in. I just can't control it anymore and it just, that's an area. Where's the enemy having victory in your life? That's a Huge question. What aspects of your mind need to be brought under Christ this week? The book of Corinthians talking about taking every thought captive under the authority of Jesus, right? So maybe for some here, it's like, oh, my mind is just going crazy. I'm so anxious. I'm always comparing myself to somebody else, or I just can't control the way I think about situations. I need to, thanks for asking that. Let me share with you. Let me be vulnerable. Let me pull the guard down, and let me show you where I'm paralyzed this week. Number three, what fears and anxieties are you wrestling with? What are you afraid of? Man, I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to be losing my kids or my parents are sick and I'm, I'm truly fearful that that's going to happen. Or I don't know what it is for, for any of you, but there's a bunch of them and they can tend to cripple us. We need to bring them up. We need to share them and have somebody else help us. Number four, who are you sharing your greatest joys and your deepest fears with? And you know, it's funny because for a lot of guys, they say, oh, you know what? Well, my wife is my best friend. My wife is my best friend. Well, that's awesome and that's romantic and cheery and lovely for a card. And maybe that's somewhat true and I think that that's great. But guess what? It's kind of a cop-out. Because you need other, if you're a man, you need other men who understand how men are outside of your relationship with your wife that you can share with freely and openly and honestly. Number five, what are you purposefully doing to pursue Jesus, your spouse, and your children this week? And number six, what pitfalls are crippling you this week? Where have you tripped up? Where have you fallen this week? And how can I help you with that? I tell you what, man, we start to get um, into the uh, kind of church community that has people asking themselves these sorts of questions and we're going to see things transform into deep relationships and deep friendships 
I love this one passage of scripture from the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 5. Here's what it says. The heart of man is like deep waters. Can I get an amen from anybody in here to that? Wow, I guess not. <laughs> so you're like, no, it's more like a trickling s- stream or a babbling brook. You know, like you feel like sometimes men are like way up here on the surface and it's like a slip and slide. You know what I mean? Like little tiny puddle. No. Scripture says a heart of man is deep. It's mysterious. It's like deep waters, but it's going to take a man of wisdom that can draw those things out. And for any of us, man, if we look at this passage, we need to find ourselves like the paralyzed man who understood what his weakness was. He was well aware of it. And man, he was willing to be vulnerable and willing to let people help. Number two, what else do we learn from this account? Not only does it um, involve vulnerability, but number two, it involves desperation. An attitude of desperation. Now, this is coming from two different sides. On the one hand, for the, for the one who's paralyzed, you know, he's got to be vulnerable. He's got to understand that he needs help. He's got to let other people carry him. But on the other side, for the four people that stepped up, it was an attitude of desperation that says, it doesn't matter what the cost. This is our friend. We love him. He needs help. So let's go. What can we do? We can't go in. Let's continue on in verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. This is the whole idea of raise the roof. It's where they got it from. That was dumb. I'm sorry. (laughs) And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And Jesus saw their faith and he said to him, son... Your sins are forgiven. What a glorious, incredible account of desperate friends. Notice they tried to get him in. They were picking him up. They love this guy. They want him healed. He's vulnerable. That's obvious. They're trying to get in. People are blocking him. And you can imagine, all right, well, guys, what do we do? One of them's like, I got an idea. So they go up the stairs, and I don't know if you've seen, again, those of us that have been around church, you see like these depictions of maybe what this looked like, and sometimes we view these houses as like, you know, the second floor's got like a bunch of like hay, stubble, flax kind of thing that you just maybe like gently remove over, and so they could lower them down. No, that's not the way it was. This roof was one that was like uh, something they could stand on. This roof, especially in this part of... um, Galilee was undoubtedly one that had giant wooden beams and it had a bunch of hardened clay and other things keeping it in place so that it can withhold uh, the weight of several people on it. So this was not an easy task. And remember, this is Peter's house. So just imagine, he's down there next to Jesus and, oh yes, he's teaching, oh that's Excellent point, you know. Next thing you know, up there, they start kicking, they start punching, they start pounding, and they start ripping open the ceiling of this house. And just imagine all the rubble coming down and all the dust coming down. What's going on up there? We love you, Jesus. We love our friend. And we're going to connect you guys together. 
And so we're not going to stop. And their knuckles are getting all bloody. And, they're, and it's causing a scene. And everybody's like, what's going on? But look at the act of love that was committed by these guys who were desperate to see their friend healed. You can just imagine Peter like, this is my house, you know. I just did that. I worked hard on that. I don't care. We'll pay for it. It doesn't matter. This is happening now. Think about that kind of dedication. And my question for you is not just, so are you vulnerable? Do people know your weaknesses? What's going on in your heart? Are they aware of where you're paralyzed? But my question is this. Who in your life are you desperately trying to bring to Jesus? What friendships do you have in your life where you're willing to go above and beyond the call of duty and do whatever it takes, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's painful, even if it's tiring? I'm so committed to you and what I want for you and what Jesus can do for you. The cost doesn't matter. Do you have those kind of people in your mind right now? Can you think of them? Can you think about the people in your life that have maybe done that for you? think about all the excuses it's too busy too many people it's too heavy it's going to cost a lot of money it's going to make a scene I mean think about the guy who is paralyzed think about how awkward it would be for him he's being carried who knows if it was you know all right I got an arm we got legs all right four of us I don't know if there was a mat somehow involved probably maybe I don't know but they they finally tore open this big enough for a man to fit down, but that must have been an awkward exchange. Nobody looks good when they're hanging upside down. I mean, just yesterday I saw a Facebook uh, video, I don't know if you guys have seen this one, of some like 75-year-old woman that went skydiving for the first time. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that one? And she's, you know, on tandem with another guy like they always make him do. But somehow she didn't get strapped, strapped in properly or something broke or whatever. And as soon as they jump out of that plane at, you know, 10, 12,000 feet or whatever it was, she was in trouble. And she starts slipping out of that thing. And she's slipping out until the only thing that's left are her hands and her feet. And the rest of her body is underneath like that, just held together, the strap up here. That's it. And the guy who's in the tandem... Uh, is obviously quite concerned. So he's like just holding on for dear life to her legs and to her arms until they finally get her down there. But it was embarrassing. Nobody looks good like that. Think about this guy dropping him down and everybody's looking and you're upside down and you can't right yourself but you're somehow strapped in with some sort of pulley system. But it didn't matter. And think about it for him. I mean, don't you think that would be embarrassing? Wow, to really bring somebody to Jesus. Don't you think that's going to, you know, be shameful in some respects? Well, maybe. But think about the conversations that they had later on up in heaven, even right now, him with his four friends. Dudes, thank you so much for doing that. I don't deserve friends like you. I was weak and you didn't care. I was awkward and gangly, and you loved me anyway. And you bloodied yourself and spent yourself to see me healed. Was it embarrassing? Was it weird? Was it awkward? Yeah, maybe. But it was totally worth it in the end. 
I'm just telling you right now, if we have that same attitude with somebody and we're that dedicated to our friends to bring them, it might be embarrassing, it might be awkward, conversations might be weird, yes, I'm going to invite you again, I know you're having some problems, well, let me go out and buy this book for you, I know you're sick, let me just sit with you for a couple of hours, nothing's going to stop me, because my love is so fierce and so dedicated and so desperate, I want to see you healed. You got those four guys around you? Those four girls around you? Think about the conversations afterwards. Thank you for putting up with me. Thank you for not giving up on me. Think about the stories that we're going to hear if we take the posture that these guys took. There's one final piece of this, uh, this account that's sobering. We tend to breeze right over it, right? But what was the whole reason that these guys had to tear open the roof? It says, well, we tried to get them in to see Jesus. We, uh, we attempted, but it was so crowded and nobody would move that we couldn't even get in. There was roadblocks. And you know who were the people causing the roadblocks? Well, maybe there was a couple of Pharisees there that were there to cause trouble. And, and again, this is way early on in Jesus' ministry, so it's mostly just curious onlookers. But all the disciples were there, early followers were there. They're all standing there wanting to get as close to possible as Jesus. And yet, unknowingly, they're blocking someone else from seeing Jesus. Is it possible in your life, with your testimony, with your tendencies, unknowingly perhaps that you're even keeping someone else from seeing Christ which ju with judgmentalism with attitudes at work with language with lifestyle every Sunday hey everything's great hey brother how you doing but it's a different world on the outside and it's what an unbelieving world just cannot comprehend could it be possible that these people in this story were too busy with their position that they didn't see their mission is it possible that they're too involved in worship that they missed out on someone else feeling unworthy is it possible they were too enthralled with teaching that they missed out on the reaching they were so in tune with the hearing that they missed out on a healing that's the evidence of what happened there. Is it happening here? I hope that as a church we can have the perspective that we will do whatever it takes to reach this world. I want to close with an incredible piece of literature that was a poem written by a guy named Sam Shoemaker. I don't know anything about him, when he lived or, or anything else, but when you talk about the attitude of bringing other people in, letting them see Jesus these words gripped me. It's called The Door. These are excerpts from it. Here's what he says. He says, I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. For the door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There is, there is no use my going way inside and staying there. When so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all 
so that so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I'll stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door that leads to God. The most important thing that any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. So go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down the cavernous cellars and way up to the spacious attics. It is a vast, roomy house, this house where God is. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depths and the heights of God. But as for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know he's there, but not so far from men as to not hear them. And remember, they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch so I shall stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I stand by the door. A pretty incredible perspective when you think about what our attitude to the world should be. And maybe something similar was in mind with the psalmist in Psalm 84, where he loves worship and he loves God and says, hey, you know what? Better is one day in your courts. It's better than a thousand anywhere else, but... I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. As we think about this account, I just want to leave you with those two words. Have you shown yourself friendly? Are you vulnerable? Are you open with weaknesses and your need for Jesus? Willing enough even to be embarrassed and invite other people in and say, hey, I need you at times to carry me. I know I look like I'm pretty strong and I appear like maybe I have it together, but man, there are times I need to be carried. I'm vulnerable. Who are you looking at that says, I'm going to do everything I can. I don't care if my knuckles get bloody. I'm going to be one of the four that are so committed to rescue and healing and restoration that we won't be stopped. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, man, we uh, are just in awe of this account. Lord, we know this is not a parable. We know it's not one of the stories that you told for a cute little meaning. This actually happened. And Father, I pray that we would be the community and the kind of people whose knuckles and fingers are deeply scarred from tearing open walls to see our friends heal. So we love you so much, God, and this morning we just confess our need of you, the healer. Lord, make this a community where these things are true. We love you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.